Thank you for staying tuned. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, and we are talking about Yom Kippur. We are on the Mikra A Kodesh Holy Convocation series, and we've already re- uh, listened to Part A and Part B of this particular commentary. We're now poised to start Part C, and um, this will cover, or I should say, this will begin Section Seven. If you noticed from the um, opening page, the syllabus of sorts. Um, for this commentary. It's broken up into 13 sections, and we've already looked at parts 1 through 6. So we're ready now to start part 7, which is, if you have the written notes, it's entitled Apologetics Part 1. As as I've uh, already mentioned to those listening to the podcast, much of my commentary to Yom Kippur, uh, Day of Atonement, has already been studied in previous commentaries. Uh, I used information from Parashat Aharimot heavily, and I'm also relying on information from previous Torah portions that I've studied. So, for that reason, because the written notes are identical, I've decided to go ahead and use the same audio notes from those sections. So, if you hadn't listened then, you're going to hear it now. Let's pick up again our study with the paragraph entitled Number 7, Apologetics, Part 1. Let's turn now to a discussion of the expiatory offerings and their bearing on Jews and Christians today. To be sure, this will be a central topic of my commentary today. For the sake of this next apologetic section, I'd like to create two imaginary groups. One of the groups will be the missionary, and the other group will be the anti-missionary. Now, the missionaries are, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the terms and the way I'm using them, missionaries are Uh, those who take the gospel to those who don't have the gospel. Now, in truth, every religion has their missionaries. But for the sake of my exercise here, the missionaries are the um, enemies of the... um, The the missionaries are the enemies of the anti-missionaries. Now, um, I'm using terms that actually truly exist today. The missionaries are those who are described by um, some Jewish... uh, sects or Jewish um, authorities as Christians who want to turn Jews into Christians. Are you understanding my illusion there? A missionary is someone who's seen as a threat. Someone who's going to turn um, a Jew into a Christian is obviously going to take that Jew away from Judaism. They're going to lose the Jew to Judaism in the in the eyes of the Jewish people. And so a missionary is seen as a bad thing. The anti-missionary are, of course, those people that I'm describing, the people who would rather see the Jewish people remain Jewish and not turn to Christianity. So, missionary and anti-missionary. Again, in reality, both of these groups really exist, but my commentary will of necessity be uh, structuring the respective arguments for my readers today. Now, I'd like to start by citing some somewhat standard answers to a few Christian objections um, here presented as the missionaries. In other words, the Christians are the missionaries, and the answers will concern themselves with the sacrifices and atonement. A sample missionary question will appear first with a standard Jewish answer here read as the anti-missionaries following. In In other words, the standard Christian position will be the missionary, and the standard Jewish position will be the anti-missionary. In reality, I'm not trying to say that um, Christians are good and Jews are bad, or Christians are bad and Jews are good. I'm not trying to say either one of those things. But, in the um, in the world in which we live in today, uh, the term anti-missionary is utilized by those Jewish groups who are seeking to prevent Christians from turning their own people into Christians. 
Okay, I know the terms can get confusing. Uh, later in the commentary, I'm going to take my own shot at refuting the standard anti-missionary answers. But let's first list two questions from the missionaries, from the Christians, and allow the anti-missionaries, the standard Jewish people, to answer. Again, this is just a an exercise in um, in scriptural study. It's not designed to cause you to re- think that the Christians are bad and the Jews are good, or that the Jews are... Uh, uh, bad and the Christians are good or either one of those two things, okay? Let's just move forward with the exercise. First question. Again, this would be like, picture this setting, okay? A Christian and a Jew having a dialogue. And the question is uh, from the Christian and the answer is from the Jew. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Question. How do Jews obtain forgiveness without sacrifices? Answer. Forgiveness is obtained through repentance, prayer, and good deeds. In Jewish practice, prayer has taken the place of sacrifices. In accordance with the words of Hosea, we we render instead of bullocks the offering of our lips. The reference is to Hosea 14.3. Please note that the KJV translates this somewhat differently. While dedicating the temple, King Solomon also indicated that prayer can be used to obtain forgiveness. Look at 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46 through 50. Our prayer services are in many ways designed to parallel the sacrificial practices. For example, we have an extra service on Shabbat to parallel the extra Shabbat offering. For more information about this, see Jewish liturgy. That is to say, see a, a Siddur, a prayer book. It is important to note that in Judaism, sacrifice was never the exclusive means of, of obtaining forgiveness. Uh, was not in and of itself sufficient to obtain forgiveness, and in certain circumstances was not even effective to obtain forgiveness. This will be discussed farther below. All right, that's our first round of question and answers. Let's keep going. Second question from a standard missionary, a.k.a. a Christian, and now our second answer from a standard anti-missionary, a.k.a. your average Jewish person. Question, but isn't a blood sacrifice required in order to obtain forgiveness? Answer, No. Although animal sacrifice is one means of obtaining forgiveness, there are non-animal offerings as well, and there are other means for obtaining forgiveness that do not not involve sacrifices at all. The passage that people ordinarily cite for the notion that blood is required is Leviticus 17.11, which reads, For the soul of the flesh is in the blood, and I have assigned it for you upon the altar to provide atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that atones for the soul. But the passage that this verse comes from is not about atonement. It is about dietary laws, and the passage says only that that blood is used to obtain atonement, not that blood is the only means for obtaining atonement. Leviticus 17:10 through 12 could be paraphrased paraphrased as quote, "Don't eat blood because blood is used in atonement rituals, therefore don't eat blood." End quote. Now I would okay. Now and let me just stop there. That's the end of the anti-missionary answer. Okay, that is the end of part seven, apologetics part one. And our section seven, apologetics part one. Let's continue our look at the Yom Kippur um, dilemma. In, in other words, um, how do Jewish people obtain forgiveness now that there is no sacrificial system and isn't in fact blood required um, in order to obtain forgiveness? Let's move into another section, um, section eight on the written notes, and we'll continue with the questions and answers um, for between our missionary and our anti-missionary. Okay. 
now, I'd like to supply some messianic answers to these issues posed by my imaginary missionary and his anti-missionary opponent. Now, what I mean by me- messianic this time is a Jewish person and or a Christian who also embraces a Judaic lifestyle, a Hebraic lifestyle. That's what I mean by the term messianic there, such as the messianic movement or messianic Judaism. Messianic there refers to someone who is not completely um, indifferent to the Ju- to the Jewish views and Jewish sensitivities. And this would automatically discount your average missionary Christian because much of Christianity today does not embrace a Hebraic lifestyle. Thus, um, in order to approach the anti-missionary, the Jewish people, with a, um, a desire to remain Jewish, the Messianic seems, in many ways, better uh, positioned or better equipped to address those issues because he, like his anti-Jewish, I'm sorry, like his anti-missionary counterpart, all already embraces the Hebraic lifestyle. And so much of the resistance from the anti-missionaries stems from their perceived view of Christians seeking to turn them into Christians, a position that we Messianics firmly disagree with. We don't want to turn Jewish people into Christians. We want to turn them into believers, that's true, believers in Christ, absolutely. But that doesn't turn them into Christians, as in giving up their Hebraic lifestyle, as in giving up their Torah obedience. Are you understanding the slight difference there? A Messianic person, as I'm describing them here in my commentary, is someone who seeks to embrace the Torah as his lifestyle, not seeking to jettison such a lifestyle once he comes to faith in Jesus. So that's a stark difference between the Messianic and the missionary. Although both the Messianic and the missionary both seek to bring Jesus to the anti-missionary. Okay? I hope I didn't confuse anyone. Let's go forward. Alright, this time the question that I'm going to ask could feasibly be posed by either a missionary or an anti-missionary. It doesn't matter. But the answers are definitely my missionary answer. Okay, missionary referring to um, faith in Yeshua. Alright, here's the question. Is there atonement without the sacrifices? And if there is atonement, is such atonement offered for both intentional and unintentional sins? Again, this could be like... Uh, now we've now we've got three people sitting around a, a table or whatever. We've got a, a missionary, which is a Christian, an anti-missionary, which is a Jew, and then we've got this messianic who could either be a messianic Jew or a messianic Gentile. It doesn't matter. The word messianic, again, just simply refers to his embracing of the Hebraic lifestyle. All right. The question could be from either the missionary or the anti-missionary, but now the messianic person is going to answer. All right, here we go. First of all, in the answer... What are intentional and unintentional sins? Because that's how the question uh, was posed. That's how it was worded. Rennie S. Altman of the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, the UAHC, says this about such sins. All right, I'm going to pull a quote from, um, from an online article at the UAHC. Quote, In Leviticus 4, we read about the chata'at, the sin offering, that the Israelites were required to bring when they had, trans- when they had transgressed a known commandment, as well as when they had committed an, an unintentional sin, either because of their ignorance of the commandments or through carelessness or oversight. In the latter instance, um, everyone in the Israelite community was obligated to bring an offering, even the high priest. 
In contrast to many of us today, our ancestors understood that they were responsible for all their actions, whether intentional or not. In his commentary on Levine, Baruch Levine explains that according to ancient cultic belief systems, guilt exists regardless of the perpetrator's awareness of having committed a sin. Guilt, as it were, has a life of its own, and only an act of expiation can wipe it away. Thus, we learn in Sefer HaChinuk, a 13th century work that discusses the commandment and their purposes, quote, When a man sins, he cannot cleanse his heart merely by uttering between himself and the wall, quote, I have sinned and I will never repeat it, end quote, or by doing an overt act to atone for his sin by taking rams from his enclosures and troubling himself to bring them to the temple, give them to the priest, and perform the entire rite as prescribed for sin offerings. Only then will he impress upon his soul the extent of the evil of his sin and take measures to avoid it in the future. End quote. Let's now turn to a discussion about the efficacy of the animal sacrifices themselves, comparing popular Christian theology against the Torah. For this section, I'm going to provide the readers with an extended quote from a work by respected author Walter C. Kaiser Jr. in his book Toward Rediscovering the Old Testament, uh, which, of course, has proven to be an invaluable resource in helping to uncover the truth behind this crucial topic of discussion. This next section in my commentary is near the bottom of page 7, and it is the paragraph that is entitled 8.1. Were the Old Testament sacrifices personally and objectively effective? Okay, so this is inside of the section number 8 of Apologetics Part 2. We're going to just um, break this part into, let's see, we got Part 1. So it's just, it's just 8.1, okay? And then from there, we'll move into section number 9, okay? <clears throat> let's see, is it, um, yeah, it's it's a direct quote from Kaiser's book. Quote, the repeated statement of the Law of Moses on the effects of of the sacrifices offered for sin in the Levitical law is, quote, and he shall be forgiven, end quote. He references Leviticus 1, verse 4, 4, verse 20, and 26, and 31, and 35, and 5, verse 10, and 16. So effective and so all-embracing was this forgiveness. Keep in mind, Kaiser is referring to the forgiveness mentioned in the Mosaic law. By the way, Kaiser has no Jewish axe to grind. He's writing from his Christian position, so this is quite interesting. Let's keep reading. So effective and so all-embracing was this forgiveness that it availed for such sins as lying, theft, fraud, perjury, and debauchery, according to Leviticus 6, verses 1-7. through 7. In David's case, the list extended to adultery and compl or complicity in murder. You can read Psalm 32 and, and 51. In fact, in connection with the Day of Atonement, what is implicit in these other lists is clearly stated, quote, all their sins were atoned, end quote. That's Leviticus 16:21 as well as 22. Uh, the emphasis is mine. Thus, instead of limiting the efficacy of, the, of this forgiveness to ceremonial sins, all the sins of all the people who were truly repentant were included. It is important to note that the qualifications of a proper heart attitude is clearly stated in Leviticus 16.29 and 31, where the people are asked to, quote, afflict, the Hebrew word is anah, afflict their souls, according to the KJV. Accordingly, only those who had inwardly prepared their hearts were eligible to receive the gracious gift of God's forgiveness. You can compare this information 
Kaiser says also from 1 Samuel uh, 15.22. Nevertheless, Kaiser continues, a major problem appears whenever the Christian introduces the argument of Hebrews 9 through 10 into this discussion. Now, the writer of Hebrews states in no uncertain terms that, quote, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. End quote. That's Hebrews 10, verse 1 and verse 4. Kaiser goes on to say, This surely seems to diminish the high claims that we just finished attributing to the writer, uh, to the writer of Leviticus. In fact, Hebrews 9.9 9 adds that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. Uh, quote. What shall we say then about the forgiveness offered in the Torah? It would be too much to contend that the Old Testament offerer of forgiveness repeated so often in the Levitical institution of the sacrifices was only symbolic and offered no actual cleansing from or removal of sin. The only solution, Kaiser continues, is to take both the Old Testament and New Testament statements seriously. We conclude then with Hobart Freeman that the Old Testament sacrifices were subjectively efficacious in that the sinner did receive full relief based on the clear declaration of God's appointed servant. But it is just as clear that the sacrifices of bulls and goats were not in themselves expiatory and efficacious. The most the most these sacrifices could do was to point to the need for a perfect living substitute who would, in the timing of God, ransom and deliver all from the debt, guilt, and effects of their sin. Thus, the Old Testament sacrifices were not objectively efficacious, but then neither did the Old Testament ever claim that the blood of these bulls and goats was inherently effective. Kaiser continues, Jeffrey Grogan would not solve the problem by using the distinction Freeman has used here. In fact, he believes that the Old Testament sacrifices were ineffective both objectively and subjectively. He cites two reasons for the ineffectiveness of the sacrifices. Number one, they had to be repeated. And number two, they were animal sacrifices and thus could not truly act as substitutes for humans. But when the natural question is put to Grogan, and here's the question, quote, did they affect nothing then, end quote, he answers that their true function was provisional, quote, imposed until the time of reformation, end quote, and the reference is from Hebrews 9, 9 through 10 from the RSV. Kaiser continues, in the meantime, the Old Testament sacrifices typified the sacrifice that was to come in Christ, and thus they were a means of grace by which the sacrifice of Christ could be channeled even to Old Testament worshippers. <clears throat> Kaiser continues, we believe that both Freeman and Grogan end up with the same position, though Freeman has the advantage in treating the fact that real forgiveness was affected in connection with a proper use of the sacrifices and with a declaration that their sins were gone and remembered against them no more. Um, Kaiser continues, the efficacy of the Old Testament sacrifices then rested in the word of God, who boldly announced that sacrifices done in this manner and with this hard attitude, um, reference, um, I'm sorry, let me read that 
start that paragraph again. This is Kaiser. The efficacy of the Old Testament sacrifices then rested in the word of God, who boldly announced that sacrifices done in this manner and with this hard attitude would receive from God a genuine experience of full forgiveness. And then Kaiser references Psalm 50, verse 8 and verse 14, 51, verse 16, which is a quote, I'm sorry, which is also repeated in Hebrews 10, 8. Proverbs 15, verse 8, 21 verse 3, Isaiah 1 verses 11 through 18, as well as Isaiah 66 3, Jeremiah 7 21 through 23, Hosea 6 6, Amos 5 21, and then finally Micah 6 verses 6 through 8. Of course, everything depended on the perfect payment for this release, Kaiser goes on to continue, a payment that would occur sometime in the future. Therefore, not the blood of bulls and goats, but the quote unquote blood, um, according to Leviticus, the life rendered up in violent death, um, of, a perfect animal, of a perfect animal sacrifice finally made possible all the forgiveness um, proleptically enjoyed in the Old Testament and retrospectively appreciated in the New Testament. Only the Lamb of God could have provided objective e- efficacy, even though the subjective efficacy that had preceded it was grounded on the authority and promise work of Christ. Finally, um, well, not finally, but uh, Kaiser continues, Until the death of Christ happened, the sins of the Old Testament saints were both forgiven and quote-unquote passed over. According to Romans 3.25, the Greek word is paresis. In, I'm sorry, it's paresis, I believe. In uh, Anyway, these uh, sins were both forgiven and passed over in the merciful grace of God until the expiatory death of Christ provided what no animal could ever do and what no Old Testament text ever claimed could do. Kaiser concludes, near the bottom of page 9 is where we are, quote, During the Old Testament period, sins were forgiven and remembered against men and women no more. Um, reference Psalm 103.3 as well as 10-12. through 12. In fact, um, they were removed as far from the Old Testament confessor as the East is from the West. That's quite amazing, I might interject. Kaiser continues, Thus the Old Testament saints experienced sins forgiven on the basis of God's word and sins forgotten, in essence, remembered against them no more, according to Ezekiel 18.22 of his translation. So, um, Kaiser concludes by saying, The Old Testament saints experienced sins forgiven on the basis of God's word and sins forgotten on the same basis. End quote. Isn't that interesting, the way that Kaiser put it, how that we are not um, we are not saying that the Old Testament was deficient in the way that the sacrifices were presenting themselves to the worshiper. Kaiser didn't mention anything about the cleansing of the sanctuary, but we're going to talk about that if we haven't already talked about it in previous commentaries. In a nutshell, the um, sacrifices did afford real cleansing according to the flesh, and that was something that was needed temporally each time that the person brought, or I should say, um, journeyed to the tabernacle or later the temple. In other words, every time they approached God, sacrifices were needed, not just for um, the worshiper and the the, the, the life-for-life payment that was being displayed and pointing toward Yeshua in the future, um, but also they were needed because the sanctuary itself was sustaining... um, uh, what's the word I want to use? Uh, I want to say it was getting dirty, but it it, it was be it was becoming defiled by the sins of the people, 
and the animals provided the wiping on smearing off feature that we discussed in uh, our um, in our uh, definition of the word kafar. So let's keep reading. We're at the bottom of page nine. Um, considering the information that Kaiser just provided, let me just go ahead and pick up my own information, my own thoughts to what we just read from Kaiser. I think it's safe to say that both missionaries and anti-missionaries would agree that atonement is made available for sin in general, but they would simply and sharply disagree on the methods of procuring such atonement. In other words, the missionaries are keen to, like Kaiser has, point towards the efficacy of the future sacrifice of Yeshua. Of course, Kaiser is using 2020 hindsight, which is always... Um, you know, perfect vision if we look backwards once we've already seen what has come. But um, now we're looking, in other words, any Christian can look at the sacrifices of the Tanakh knowing that Yeshua's bloody sacrifice has already taken place and look backwards into the Tanakh and say, of course they point towards Yeshua, but not so easy before Yeshua's atonement had been enacted in his own bloody sacrifice, right? So, Missionaries would agree that atonement is made available. Anti-missionaries who would reject would would reject Yeshua's atonement, both in the time period of the talk as well as today, um, would of course disagree on the methods of procuring atonement. So, what exactly is the big issue at stake here so far? If you haven't caught it, perhaps there's at least two issues that I see: exactly which sins are atoned for, and by what method are they atoned. Now, some of you listening to my commentary would say, Well, Ariel, why should we care which sins are atoned for? Well, the reason you should care is because the Bible, uh, the Bible, the Tanakh, talks about or discusses two types of sins in general. We generally have um, repentance, or sins for which, um, uh, well, I, I'm trying to get ahead of myself. Let me go ahead and just um, read my commentary, okay? Since, we're on the top of page 10 now, since our parasha, or our study, centers on the Yom Kippur ritual, it is there that I shall turn first for support of my detailed answer on these issues that I just discussed, which types of uh, sins are atoned for, and, um, you know, uh, uh, which sins are atoned for, and by what method are they atoned? That's the question I posed at the bottom of page 9, right? I firmly believe that the Torah clearly teaches that the Yom Kippur ritual was intended both for, and here they, here they are, here's the two types of sins, okay? Both for intentional and unintentional sins. Okay? Two different types of sins described in the Bible, and two, diff- two very important distinctions, I might add. Before I show my answer as to why I believe that the Yom Kippur uh, ritual uh, was intended for both of these types, let me show you another anti-missionary answer, and then I'm going to give my own answer. Some anti-missionaries would readily disagree with my above statement about Yom Kippur. In other words, they would teach that there is no atonement for intentional sins. If you sin intentionally, the Yom Kippur ritual is not going to atone for that. A well-known anti-missionary organization by the name of Jews for Judaism agrees with the notion of atonement for intentional and unintentional sins, but the means of such atonement is radically different than the accepted missionary approach. So, Keep in mind, there are two issues that I'm addressing simultaneously. Two types of sins, intentional and unintentional, and what are the methods by which they are atoned. So we're going to list, we're going to look now at Jews for Judaism. They do agree that the Yom Kippur will, will take care of both intentional and unintentional sins. However, they differ from the missionaries in how that method is walked out by your average person. Here's Jews for Judaism, quote, 
Biblically, the optimum means for attaining atonement consists of both animal sacrifices and sincere confessionary repentant prayer used in conjunction with each other. Traditional Judaism looks forward to the restoration of the dual system working simultaneously, animal sacrifice and contrite prayer. Let me pause there for a moment within my quote from Jews for Judaism and just say something to the missionaries, to the Christians today. That first paragraph right there is accurate if we were to uh, understand um, that the um, temporary forgiveness or the cleansing of the sacrifice or the the allowance of the worshiper to approach God were in view. If that were only in view, then that first paragraph is quite accurate. We have animal sacrifices with sincere confessionary repentant prayer. That's really the first steps that any worshiper should take, both in the time period of the talk as well as today if we had a temple standing. That first step there, animals along with sincere confessionary print and prayer, I think that's accurate. And since we don't have uh, the animal system, then all we have now left with for those who are starting out, those who have not yet place their faith in Yeshua, that's what I mean by the word starting out, then sincere confessionary repentant prayer is recommended. You would have to agree with me, yes. In other words, we've got our prayer books today, the Siddur that I'm fond of reading from and that many other Jewish people, both Messianic as well as non-Messianic, are fond of using. And the sincere confessionary repentant prayer is something that we need to give the Jewish people today credit for. Even though they don't believe in Yeshua and even though there are no animal sacrifices, that is a genuine ingredient that God expects of us. Sincere confessionary repentant prayer. That is correct. Now, of course, they go wrong in that Messiah has already come, and they're going to reject uh, Messiah's atonement. Therefore, without the animals, they're kind of left with a, um, a, a very big dilemma as to what blood is atoning for them. Let's keep reading Jews for Judaism. Quote, The rabbis under the leadership of Yochanan ben Zachai did not make an unscriptural substitution when they emphasized sincere confessionary repentant prayer as a means of obtaining atonement. Did you see it there? They, uh, um, we've got sincere confessionary repentant prayer substituted for the absence of the animals. okay, They already did confess that optimally we would have both the animals plus sincere prayer. But now since we don't have any animals, the rabbis of, of antiquity are left to imagine that sincere repentant prayer is the substitution for the missing blood. Okay, that's what I mean. Let's keep reading their quote. Uh, this is Jews for Judaism. Quote, The Bible already mandated sincere confessionary repentant prayer as a proper vehicle for attaining forgiveness. In the biblical period, atonement prayer was used with full divine sanction, with or without animal offerings, even for non-Jews. And the the um, example they cite is Jonah 3, 5 through 10. Again, very difficult argument to um, defend uh, or I'm sorry, to um, to refute if you're not aware of how intimately the animals are supposed to point towards Yeshua. And even in the absence of animals, we still have an objective view towards the promised one to come. In other words, God is not without leaving people with a revelation of the promises of the word to come, who of course is Yeshua, even in the book of Jonah. And we, we don't have time to go through the entire book of Jonah to show how that um, it was not simply their prayer that did it. There was and should and could be 
the objective view towards the promised word to come. Let's keep reading Jews for Judaism. Quote, Sincere confessionary repentant prayer is the primary biblical prescription for obtaining atonement when animal sacrifices cannot be offered concurrently. Animal sacrifices are only prescribed for unwitting or unintentional sin. The Hebrew word is shogeg, for unintentional sin. Uh, unintentional, that is. Leviticus 4.2, as well as 13, 22, and 27, and Leviticus 5.5 5 and 5.15, um, copied from number or compared from Numbers 15.30, are the verses that they cite for their statement there that animal sacrifices are only prescribed for, for shogeg sins. The one exception is if an individual swore falsely to acquit himself of the, accus- of the accusation of having committed theft, the references to Leviticus 5.24-26. Intentional sin can only be atoned for through repentance, unaccompanied by a blood sacrifice. There are references to Psalm 32.5 and 32.51 as well. I'm sorry, 32.5 as well as 51, verse 16 and 19. Finally, Jews for Judaism has this to say, quote, Giving charity is a material expression of this inner repentance that is articulated in the rabbinic formula. And here is the rabbinic formula, quote, Prayer, repentance, and charity avert the evil decree, end quote. The reference is the, to the um, Jerusalem Talmud at Tractate Ta'anit um, 2, paragraph 1, which is on um, Doth 65b, page 65b of the Talmud there. This is based on the verse which we find in the book of Second Chronicles, and now Jews for Judaism is going to quote this Pasuk, which is really quite familiar to many Christians. Here it is, quote, If my people upon whom my name is called shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land, end quote. Very familiar passage and a very relevant passage, and we know that the passage is accurate, okay? And uh, again, what Jews for Judaism is, is going to say here is that there's nothing mentioned here in this Pasuk in Second Chronicles about animal sacrifices because the temple had not been constructed yet. And so, if my people upon whom my name is called shall humble themselves and pray, what is prayer? Well, that's the ingredient that they're talking about. Sincere, confessionary, repentant prayer. That's what we find in the bulk of our Siddurim today, our prayer books. Pray, seek my face, and turn from their evil ways. Of course, there is Teshuvah involved, returning to God's ways, turning from the evil, and returning to God's ways. Then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. And again, my only um, argument against using this Pasek to to push their view is that this verse is not... Um, stated in a vacuum. This verse was stated after the Levitical system had already been instituted. Therefore, the Levitical system with the animals is the norm, not the exception. The confessionary uh, repentant prayer is is a necessary ingredient included in the Levitical system. They don't work in opposition to one another, as Judaism, as Jews for Judaism would agree. They work together. They already confessed that optimally that would be what the um, worshiper should have. My only point that they're missing is that all of it pointed towards Yeshua's final sacrifice. We know that the prophets foretold of the um, suffering servant or the righteous servant who was to come and who in fact would be God's chosen servant to bring Israel to the point 
where she could, in fact, enjoy full forgiveness where God would remember their sins no more. And that is actually spoken of explicitly in Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, those familiar passages there. Let's conclude this section uh, under 8.1. We're at the bottom of page 10, and then we'll call this part C, and then and we're ready to, to continue our study in part D. Firstly, and these are my own comments now, okay? Firstly, it must be recognized that Hashem's forgiveness as enacted in the Korban note are reserved for those whose hearts are pure. That's true. That is, for those with the intention of turning from their sin and making restitution for sinning against God. We've talked about this over and over again to bring an animal to God's presence and with, with, with my heart already turned against God with the intention that, you know what, I'm just bringing this. It's a formality. I don't really care. I just want to get the priest off my back so that he'll think that I'm repenting. And then once I slip the throat of the animal, catch its blood, and he dashes it on the altar, then I can go on my merry way and keep sinning. God saw through all of that, okay? And that was what I call a waste of a good animal. God was under no obligation to, to offer any sort of forgiveness to that person. And when the time came for Yom Kippur, if that person's heart was still cold, well then guess what? They did not get the forgiveness that they were hoping for that year. Others got it, but this individual did not, okay? The anti-missionaries that I just quoted earlier... Um, used Second Chronicles in an effort to demonstrate this uh, feature, how that, um, that genuine repentance is, uh, is, is uh, seen in the sincere confessionary prayer. Okay? They use Second Chronicles as, as an effort to prove this, because the word pray is used in that Pasek. Um But again, I will disagree that the focus of the repentance is the prayers, the charity, and the repentance alone. Repentance is a necessary ingredient ingredient of genuine forgiveness. This is true. Charity or 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 um, um, tzedakah, uh, where we we actually do what is right, we do the right thing, which is what tzedakah is, right? Charity, doing the right thing. Or in the case of if I steal from my neighbor, I am I am obligated to pay him back. That's charity as well, tzedakah. All of these are necessary ingredients of true forgiveness. Okay, true uh, forgiveness from God. Uh, more on these three later in this commentary. But I maintain that our focus today can only be on the spotless lamb, the, the, um, the objective promises that God has already provided for us in kernel form in the Torah, the spotless lamb offered by Yeshua for atonement. Yeshua is our Yom Kippur. And um, we're not going to get around this fact because God is the one who instituted these truths. These are the ways that we are to walk into his forgiveness. Sincere confessionary repentance, yes, you bet. Sincere confessionary prayer, absolutely. Repentance, um, um, coupled with uh, restitution, which is tzedakah, charity, absolutely. I agree with all of those ingredients of sincere um, forgiveness. But the missing ingredient in Judaism today is that God has already demonstrated that Yeshua is the objective sacrifice that the earthly ones pointed towards. The renewed covenant, the apostolic scriptures, is going to bear this out later as well. It's now 38 minutes or so into the commentary. Let's break this off now. Call this Yom Kippur Part C. And when we return, we're going to look at some Talmudic quotes. You know, the rabbis had a lot to say about this topic. We're going to turn to the Talmud and we're going to pull some significant quotes um, so that we can see uh, where does Judaism go wrong? Why, why have they missed the central fact that Yeshua is the Lamb? Well, we're going to turn to the Talmud and find out. Okay, so stay tuned.